In a world where film becomes reality, two hosts are dishing out the truth, blurring the lines between meaningful and mortifying. Prepare for the audio circus that is Drunk Humanity. What's up, everybody? Cheers and welcome to Drunk Humanity. I'm Sam and I'll be narrating this episode. I'm Nate and I'm finally the drunk one. And today we have our first guest on the podcast, Jake. Jake, how are you feeling? I'm feeling great. Welcome uh, to the show. Why are you welcoming him to the show? I'm welcoming <laughs> myself to the show. <laughs> Jake, I think you have a pretty natural podcast voice. Why don't you give the people like a sample of uh, what they're going to be working with throughout this episode? What do you want me to sample? That was amazing. <laughs> Perfect. Jake has got to be one of the goofiest people that we know in the best way possible, but also probably the second most handsome person we ever had on the podcast. I feel like that was shade. <laughs> more importantly, Jake also has a very strong background in all things legal. Yeah, definitely probably the most important part. This documentary today is going to touch on a lot of legal points, uh, some really interesting ones. Luckily, Jake, you, you specialize in suicide law, right? Yeah, I mean, in my 2L year, I've taken uh, suicide law under the direction <laughs> of one of the most premier professors in that, uh, that, that field. So I think I really can, uh, you know, share my knowledge with the rest of the fans worldwide here. The documentary that we're reviewing today is I Love You, Now Die, The Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter. some of your topics that you do talk about on your first date like what's one question that you think helps you understand someone i think just you know what their sort of uh ideal weekend looks like uh you know wait what does your ideal weekend look like my ideal weekend um well let's see um are we talking like single life my current ideal weekend ideal weekend I'm really bombing weekend. this first date. <laughs> huh? Your ideal first weekend, please, Jake. My ideal first weekend? You know what I mean. Just please talk into the microphone about your ideal weekend. <laughs> my ideal weekend. Um, my ideal weekend. I don't know. I mean, this is hard. How do you navigate initial conversations with people through dating apps? Give us some background. Give us some advice. So... I think you can learn, you know, it's sort of like a preemptive uh, screening for a first date. You learn some of like the surface level stuff, you know, you get maybe a little bit of like light banter, but nothing really more than that, that I think you can sustain an entire, you know, relationship with someone. I mean, you kind of have to make shit up, right? You kind of have to make yourself, you kind of have to just say something that'll catch their attention initially and go from there, right? Like you're just saying probably ridiculous things to start with until there's like some baseline attraction. No, exactly. I think, uh, 
I've tried many different sort of avenues on this route. I mean, I've tried, you know, just like a classic kind of how's it going, whatever. But I think, yeah, I don't, some things, I don't, I would go as like wild as like, you know, I'm into airport logistics. How about you? You know, like, I don't know. Can you give us a breakdown of airport logistics? Uh, I'm, I could go. Or is this an airport logistics podcast? Because I can go. We'd love to get your thoughts here. I mean, I'm passionate. If there's one thing I'm passionate about, it's airport logistics. Well, I think the, the people are curious as to why their flight is constantly getting delayed. So <laughs> yeah, that, to me know. too. I think I should be head of global airport logistics. Can that would be my dream job. Can you give us maybe one solution? Well, so many solutions. I mean... First of all, the boarding process is just unbelievably, it makes no sense. I, I don't, you know, the front of the plane, the priority, no, back of the plane, just get your shit on. If your bag is 55 pounds and five pounds over, it doesn't matter. Why does it matter if I transfer my five pounds to your bag that had the room, but yet they're still going under the plane, so it's still going to be the same weight. That part makes no sense. It is a whole thing. Very big into the airport logistics stuff, but I think it could be cleaned up. You identified the problems very <laughs> acutely. But yeah, the that's solutions were lacking. But that's see, that's what they teach you in law school. You have to get spot the issues. You know, you know, one more year to go. That's where they really teach you how to find the solution. They haven't taught solutions yet. No, no, no. That's solutions laws three L you. Yeah. The documentary is called "I Love You Now Die: The Commonwealth Versus Michelle Carter." First of all, who the fuck is the Commonwealth and how can I get some of that money? Like, how can I get some of that right. wealth? Right, I agree. And the I mean- The wealth often isn't common. <laughs> no, that, that's, that's true as well. I mean, Commonwealth, I know, like what Massachusetts is where we're talking, right? That's, that's one correct. of those like Commonwealth states. Also like, but then like Puerto Rico is a Commonwealth. So it's like, what, you know, what, what is a Commonwealth? That I don't really, you know, I don't really have the common, I think it's just like a state territory. Uh, Massachusetts, there's a lot of money in Massachusetts, so I could see that. It makes sense why they're called the Commonwealth. Right, case. right. Yeah, for sure. Not so common, other than like maybe that accent. I think that's the only thing that maybe they all share in common. <laughs> can, you, can you give us a quick accent? Yeah, I can give you a quick accent. My client, uh, you know, Miss Carter, is uh, innocent of any wrongdoings. Nailed it. Yeah. That was good. I don't think your Ms. voice... Miss Carter, park your car. Oftentimes, too, and I know it's pretty popular in true crime, but I think it, this applies to law in general. We hear that although logic can dictate how you think about one case, often at times it's how you can prove it in a legal matter. So where are decisions based in the legal system versus in logic or into common sense? Right. So it, it, it sort of depends on what, what the you know, controversy at issue is some, there's some issues that kind of are just very clear on its face and can be answered in black letter law, which essentially means like very well-established law that you can easily apply a set of circumstances to. Finally, black letter law means finally established. That's great to hear. Jake, I want you to go back to your single days. I want you to go back to the first dates you're having, you know, you're on the dating apps and you're on a first date and it's going really well. You're at a great venue. Let's just say you're at the uh, Bubba Gump Shrimp in Times Square and the date you're with, she's absolutely beautiful. She's wearing the perfect dress and you're sitting there, you're having some back and forth. You're having a lot of fun. And she just goes to you and says, Oh my God, Jake, I'm having such a good time and you're so amazing. It's like, I've never met someone so smart, but I just want to let you know one thing real quick. 
I kind of told my ex-boyfriend to kill himself. Wow, that's pretty dark. I probably wouldn't get another round of the shrimp fritters appetizers. <laughs> no second date for her? Yeah, so no, no fritters are off the here. table. No, you know, onion thing, you know, what, what, where that bubblegum shrimp? I mean, there's gotta be some good shrimp fritters, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's probably a no for me, dog. I would just swipe on right to the next one. Can you tell us about maybe some of the largest red flags? And it doesn't have to be in a date, but one time where you saw a large red flag and you you kind of didn't really know how to approach it. But. Well, some of the largest red flags, I mean, the fl the Chinese national flag, that one's quite red. Oh, my God. Um, I think, is that what you're referring to? Not quite. That is a red flag. You're not wrong. Yeah. That is a flag that is red. Would you describe yourself as more of a Judge Judy or more of a Judge Joe Brown? I am gonna have to say that Judge Judy, she's got a, she's got a, she's got a trunk. Wait, how about how about Judge Trudy though? How about Judge Trudy from the Amanda? Amanda We're just gonna show? pass over the fact that he just checked out like seventy-year-old Judge. You've Judy. never looked. No, look up Judge Judy. Look up Judge Judy Wagon. <laughs> I could be the voiceover for the guy who does Judge Judith Scheindler. They don't ever say her last name on the show. Yeah, they do no. in the beginning, and then they go. Doo -doo -doo -doo. Whatever, like no one pays attention. Oh, that. you know what? Jake is right. And her on her desk, she has Judge Judy. Judith Scheinman. Scheinman. Jake, why don't you give the people an underrated TV show that you're watching that you think everyone might enjoy? An underrated TV show that I'm currently watching? An underrated TV show that you think everyone might enjoy. The New York Islanders. Underrated. Big, big Isles game. Mike Love You Now Die, The Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter, was released in 2019. It was produced by HBO Films and directed by Erin Lee Carr. It can be found through streaming on HBO Max. The documentary is broken into two parts. Part one is called The Prosecution. The two parts illustrates to the audience the two sides of a complex issue. Instead of blending both sides within one documentary, the creators smartly showed both sides separately, and more importantly, in the order of how they'd be presented in a courtroom. We open the film on an exchange of text messages, which are used primarily to tell the story of what happened between teenagers named Michelle Carter and Conrad Roy III. And this, at this point in the documentary, you realize you cannot look away because there's just text going back and forth. You have the iPhone text notification sound going on the whole time. Jake, can you give us, what does the iPhone text sound sound like? Ding. They're just going back and forth. You have to pay attention during this documentary. The initial conversation shows text with Michelle assuring Conrad that ending his life is okay. The context of which lingers as we transition to reporters explaining the circumstances surrounding the death of 18 year old Conrad Roy III, who commits suicide in the back of his black Ford pickup truck by method of carbon monoxide poisoning. Is that when you have like too much carbon dioxide? Monoxide. Monoxide. So like one dioxide. Conrad Roy used a gas powered generator and modified the engine 
to pump carbon monoxide throughout the cabin of his truck. We cut to interviews from the perspective of Conrad's mother, father, and other family members retelling the day they found out that their loved one was dead. Conrad leaves behind notes, but more importantly, leaves behind passwords to various files on his computer. Which is a mistake. Just don't write down your passwords. After discovering the circumstances surrounding his death, police take these notes and other information, leading them to find the final text messages sent to his phone before his passing. They view messages reading, quote, you're overthinking, and, quote, are you going to do it now? Detectives find that Michelle Carter was the sender of these text messages, and they go to her high school to interview her. She initially admits to casually knowing Conrad, but explains there was no saving him. She says he was lost in his head, and she was there to support him, but could not do much to help his pain. Detectives secure a search warrant to seize her phone, and by her reactions, it becomes very clear she does not want them to go through her messages. It is after rifling through the thousands of exchanges that police get a full picture to the extent that Michelle was involved in Conrad's life leading up to the suicide. They charge her with involuntary manslaughter and ultimately being responsible for his death. We cut to a courtroom where preliminary hearings are being carried out to weigh whether the charges are valid to bring to court. Quote, are you going to do it? You can't keep pushing it off is read out loud in the hearing by the prosecution. The presiding judge rules that there is enough evidence to bring this case to trial. Michelle's mugshot reflects an emotional young woman who may not fully understand the situation that she's in front of. News reports say that she told Conrad to, quote, fucking get back in when he gets cold feet leaving his truck going through with his own suicide. Also, I think it's important to note that, unfortunately, Conrad took his life in a Kmart parking lot. Did he, did he, was he a patron at Kmart prior? No, something tells me he didn't buy sweatpants prior to his suicide. That's like what, I mean, I, I don't know, what's... Jake, I feel like you're, t- you're talking like you're talking to a librarian right now, and you're being like very specific in your words. I love it. Uh, is that someone you speak to very specifically? Send us the name of your favorite librarian to drunkumentarypodcast at gmail.com. And we'll get them a gift certificate to Barnes & Noble. They also work at a fucking library. Why do they need to go to a Barnes & Noble? They'll check out a book. Conrad Roy III is shown in the documentary through his own webcam recordings, explaining how he struggles with anxiety and depression. He explains how he fights to be happy each day and the struggles of his mental capacity. The sense of despair from Conrad is clearly seen in these recordings, showing a young man who is trying to connect to the world with an abnormal mind fighting to keep up. The film cuts to Conrad Sr., a large bear of a man singing a song in dedication to his grandson. Jake, can you imagine all of you, your son, your grandkids, all being Jake? Are you really going to curse him like that? Yeah, that's too many. I would I, the, cutting it off at me. Imagine J three though. That's kind of fire. That is pretty fresh. I feel like that would be the first Jew in the NBA. J three for three. Family members reflect on their past lives with the youngest Conrad. The divorce of his parents was the first catalyst for discourse of his mental well being. His parents are overwhelmed with grief, struggling with their own role in his upbringing. Conrad the third has mental disabilities. And while minor, 
They are debilitating in some areas, and he fights with the disadvantage that puts him in among his peers. Conrad's sister is now interviewed and explains that Michelle and Conrad met in Florida, where both had family ties and would often vacation. Jake, you probably go down to Florida every year, right? Yeah, I'm a little bit of a young snowbird myself. I mean, I am in my mid-20s, but I have the, you know, sex drive of a 65-year-old. <laughs> no one asked that. Conrad and Michelle are introduced by mutual friends, and they spend some time together while in Florida, and after, they begin texting. They truly only met five times in person, but they carry an intense romance online that most millennials can probably relate to today. Their first time hanging out was just them riding bikes together. And she says that she immediately fell in love with Conrad. What was Conrad doing? Was he just standing up pedaling? And she was like, damn, like he's really going fucking fast. Conrad must have been wearing gray sweatshorts. <laughs> From Kmart. <laughs> Those close to the two explain that this may have been a destructive situation from the start with two broken people encouraging ongoing self-loathing. Reporters reveal that Michelle is officially facing manslaughter charges in Conrad's death. Michelle's appeals attorney discusses with the Judiciary Board on the grounds of the charges, arguing that Massachusetts does not have a statute in this type of manslaughter. The appeals judge pushes back, saying there is a statute on involuntary manslaughter, which is the exact charge Michelle is facing. The judges rule the charges are valid and they uphold the indictment, sending the case to court. Her defense attorney argues that words cannot be directly pointed to as the cause of a death. Yeah, that makes sense. This kind of like words as being, you know, a causal relationship to the death is, is very interesting. In New York State, how do you feel like the laws have kept up with technology as we move forward? Generally speaking, the law has definitely evolved to, you know, factor in and take into account evidence from text messages and emails when that first was a big thing. Luckily, you can say anything through Snapchat and it'll be deleted after 24 hours. So I, I admit to all of my crimes through Snapchat. Yeah, I, I would not recommend that. An interesting point here is that Michelle waives her right to a jury trial, allowing a single judge to decide whether she is truly culpable for Conrad Roy III's death. Conrad's mother leads the trial and is put on the stand. She describes Michelle as a typical suburban girl with a regular upbringing. Michelle is, in actuality, a social outcast who doesn't have any close friends. Former acquaintances, peers, and teammates are put on the stand demonstrating how they were on speaking terms without true friendship qualities. All of her friends were said to be in-school friends, which is kind of fucked up because it's like, sure, I'll talk to you in school, but I'm never fucking hanging out with you outside of school. Michelle is found to have been aware every step of the way of Conrad's process in suicide. She encourages the gas purchase to power the generator used to produce clouds of smoke and carbon monoxide that fills the young man's lungs. Michelle uses this tragedy to try to spend time with these girls she so desperately wanted as friends. She posts several pictures on her Facebook page depicting Conrad offering her prayers, and she even organizes a baseball tournament in Conrad's memory to raise money for mental health. It, that part's a little weird to me because it's called Homers for Conrad. And not only that, 
she sets up this entire baseball event, Jake, for Conrad's memorial to raise money for the funeral, whatever it may be. And it's in her hometown, hmm. which is about 45 minutes away from Conrad's hometown. And so at one point, one of the baseball players in the charity game says, hey, don't you think we should do it back in Conrad's hometown where all his family, friends, and loved ones are? Right, right. And she says, no, this is my idea. You're not taking my idea, are you? Wow. What the fuck? Fucking crazy to think of. And at one point, she even says to one of her friends in a text message, OMG, I'm like famous now. Ha ha. Michelle wanted to capitalize and take credit for all the good she does in Conrad's memory. She takes pictures with many of the baseball teams that participated in the tournament that day, soaking in the attention that she so lustfully sought. Jesse Barron, a contributor to Esquire magazine who covered the case, explains succinctly that this has become framed as a girl who killed her boyfriend in order to become popular. It is important that we understand the context of this episode is in the form of the prosecution. The media tears away at any of Michelle's credibility through this trial. They prop up her social media posts as signs of her desperation, being a young, isolated woman. It's revealed that Michelle ultimately had an eating disorder growing up. This leads to self-mutilation in the form of cutting. It's important to note that both Michelle and Conrad were on SSRIs, which are, especially at a young age, can lead to some extremely volatile decision-making thoughts. And unfortunately, these are supposed to help with depression, with anxiety, with suicidal thoughts, but also double down in some cases with some side effects as well. So this isn't unusual by any means. There are plenty of people that take SSRIs every day and deal with it great and it works for them great. But for some people, it is the complete opposite. It's important here to highlight that SSRIs stand for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. This is a class of drugs that are antidepressants, increasing levels of serotonin to the brain. Michelle uses this tragedy as a springboard for attention, and she becomes enraged when she feels like she's being ignored. It is this behavior which further secludes her from her peers. She goes from anger to apology to annoyance in rapid succession, and those in her school cannot understand this behavior. There are constant texts of desperation seeking friendship, which brings about almost immediate signs of rejection from her peers. Maybe she just kept asking her friends to go to Arby's and no one wants to fucking go to Arby's. That's probably what it is. I mean, she should have been going to bubblegum shrimp and all things would have been good. I think there would be far fewer deaths from this documentary. We would not be recording currently. Michelle is left out of parties and seen as a social outcast. Her defense team charges that her so-called friends abandoned Michelle once news media began accusing her in this case. Although the prosecution shows the text messages that paint a different picture. The defense blames Conrad Roy himself as the reason for his death. And it's his mental struggles leading to depression, which ultimately brings about his suicide. He records on his webcam his suicidal thoughts and makes it very clear that he is not happy in this world. He searches on Google about suicide 
and whether he can truly find happiness. Conrad texts Michelle images of suicide consistently. The weight of this case ultimately falls on the prosecution to prove that her actions and Michelle's words directly caused Conrad's death. Not only that, Conrad tells Michelle that he told his mother that he was thinking about suicide and even says that he sent her a picture of how to commit suicide and the best ways to do so, which is crazy. And if you remember earlier in the documentary, Jake, Conrad's mom says that she did not see his suicide coming, which is unfathomable because at this point in the documentary, we learned that Conrad had three or four previous suicide attempts. Three or four. Wow. Yeah. So how do you not see this coming? And to the credit of the family, it's believed that Conrad didn't tell his mother that he was thinking about suicide right before he did end his life. But with all these previous suicide attempts, one of them being overdosing on Tylenol, how do you question that? How do you not take better consideration of his mental health on, the da- on a daily basis? Right. I mean, I think there definitely should be responsibility pinned onto the parents for after Conrad's previous unsuccessful suicide attempts, or I guess successful. Well, no, 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 no. And I think that's an important point that you highlighted, because I think in the especially in the mental health community, that is something right now that is being addressed. It's the way that we characterize suicide. And we call a successful suicide someone who actually takes their life. Yeah. When really that's a term that's looking to be changed in the language and in everyday conversation. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. As an example, as a Jets fan, I think of a successful season as being in last place so I can get the first pick and get Trevor Lawrence. But this year was an unsuccessful season because we didn't get the first pick. And right. we're looking to change that stick. <laughs> we're going to be last in the season next year. Yeah, that's it. There we go. Jake, just to take a step back here, the documentary keeps context in saying that the prosecution is ultimately responsible for proving that Michelle is culpable for this young man's death. So when you're a prosecutor looking at this body of evidence that we've presented so far, where do you think the largest gap that the prosecution needs to cross in order to prove ultimately that Michelle is responsible? Well, in terms of the legal standard in a criminal case... The prosecution needs to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the suspect that they have charged, the perpetrator, with the said crime, basically committed it beyond all reasonable doubt. In a civil case, when you're suing someone monetarily, that standard is just preponderance of the evidence. So meaning more likely than not that you believe is responsible for what happened to you did what you're accusing them of doing. But in a criminal case like we have here, there's very little margin of error for the prosecution. They have to essentially prove almost undoubtedly that the suspect that they have here, so Michelle, was the one that was essentially responsible for Conrad's death here with the involuntary manslaughter charge. It is tough to say, honestly. And Jake, I want to give you some respect in saying that me and you are the drunk ones this episode, so the way that you could kind of word that is is a little impressive. But I mean, if is that it's also interesting just that's the location. I know 
you guys mentioned that he didn't go into said Kmart, but I just don't know if that would be my location. I don't know. Like, you would have rather him go in the Kmart, make a few purchases, be like, I would have rather him go to like Versace, get like a few belts, like, you know, just like max out the credit card. We're talking about a guy who had an F-150 pickup that sucked on the end of a generator to kill himself. We're not looking at a Versace customer. I think you're stereotyping uh, F-150 drivers, Sam. <laughs> I'd like to think he went into the Kmart, first ate out of Little Caesars. You have to eat Little Caesars with a sauce on the side. You can't just eat a Little Caesars pizza. So if he, if he ate it without a sauce on the side, I... Very suspect. Very suspect. That might have been suicide alone, just dry mouth from the crust. <laughs> I mean, that, he basically, he dry out the exhaust pipe, so not much different. <laughs> dry out the... God, how often do we want to start making fun of suicide? 58 minutes and 47 seconds into the first episode, they say the title. Wait, how the fuck do they say that? They're just like, I love you now die, the Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter. You were the one that was supposed to watch it twice before this, so I was hoping you picked up on it at least a little. I did, but I was, I was very high and a little drunk, so. I, was that one of the text messages that Michelle sent him? It was a prosecutor explaining the context of the text messages. She was describing to the court the context of why Michelle was texting him the way she was, describing it as, I love you, now die, which is where I believe they got the title from. Conrad texts Michelle asking if she supports his death, and she reassured him that she was with him every step of the way. Judge Manas, who is overseeing this complex case and ultimately deciding Michelle's fate, is also establishing precedent for similar cases in the future. He denies the defense's motion to dismiss the charges initially. And we end episode one with a strong sense that this is an open and shut case. So, Jake, after the prosecution's take on episode one, what are your first and initial thoughts about this case? Well, it sounds like the closed episode one, the evidence was definitely not in, uh, in Michelle's favor. Uh, I've been more educated on the situation by being privy to this information about how kind of influential she was on maybe his actions. It, it definitely seems to be well beyond more than just a casual joke of, you know, jump off a bridge. It seems to be more substantial than that. Wait. Jake, I just want to jump in after seeing this picture came out during the prosecution's case. And we'll put it up on our Instagram. It's at Junkumentary Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Nate, can you describe to everyone just a little bit about what we're looking at? Oh, yeah. It's Michelle Carden. She's she's very tan. It's like a Massachusetts tan, right? So you can still see, like, freckles and everything. And she's still pretty white. But her blonde hair showing, and she's got what I'd say is pretty standard duck face going on. Big forehead, I've just noticed. So she's guilty then, right? Big forehead's always Big nice. forehead guilty. That's I think that's actually the first thing that they do in a in a bench trial. That's when there's no jury. I think the judge goes, pulls out a little, you know, protractor, goes up to the forehead. All right, we're leaning guilty, you know. So explain to the people why we're looking at this specific photo, Nate. I first heard of this case through Reddit and saw this picture. And saw these the the final text telling Conrad to get back in the car, 
And so, of course, you're thinking this is the one of the worst human beings ever after seeing this picture. Would you say this picture is the one that the media most circulated around during this trial? Without a doubt. I think without a doubt. You see this face and you're thinking, this smug bitch, who the fuck is she to kill her boyfriend, essentially? Unfortunately, Nancy Grace makes an appearance highlighting this picture. She says, oh, what a sour puss. Look at this bitch. <laughs> Good evening. I'm Nancy Grace. I want to thank you for being with us. Bombshell tonight, live Fairhaven. Go ahead and do it. Do it, babe. Why haven't you done it yet? You haven't done it? Well, get back in your truck and try again to kill yourself. These are the tip of the iceberg, just some of over 1,000 texts. This honor student, Michelle Carter, sends her extremely sensitive high school boyfriend. After over 1,000 texts, plus emails, plus phone calls, Carter finally convinces this guy, a very sensitive high school grad, to park his pickup in the local Kmart, turn on the ignition, and inhale deeply, monoxide, till his death. What is that puss on her face? Hold on, back it up, Liz. What was that all about? I don't know if you have seen the shots of her, but what? Okay, hold everything. We now turn to I Love You, Now Die, Part 2, The Defense. We open Episode 2 on a dockyard with choppy New England waters. It's pretty good, right? That was yeah, good. That was keep good. that, keep that. I, all right, I'll keep that. We see a panicked text from Michelle's phone to Conrad in the context of his absence in responding. Conrad, what happened to you? In all capital letters follows. Conrad replies, fuck you. And it is revealed that he was involved in a fight with a picture of the young man showing his swollen black eye following the text. He was ultimately assaulted by his own father when Conrad III did not follow directions from Conrad Jr. The younger Conrad is found to have received a concussion from the altercation. His father in present day shows no signs of remorse for the incident, claiming it was just his parenting and that it was justified. Cut to Barron, the reporter from Esquire, who notes that both families want the same thing out of this case, a version of the story that proves that Conrad's death is not their own fault. The defense calls Dr. Peter Bregan, a child psychologist, to the stand in this trial as an expert witness. Dr. Bregan is my personal favorite character in this. He has one of the best rants in the documentary where he says that all men are completely controlled by women and all women are essentially witches and that men just have to listen to them and are just succumb to the pussy. He cracks me up. The doctor argues that the medication Conrad was taking during this time has side effects that causes mental instability. Initially, Conrad's mother accuses his own father and that side of the family in contributing most to Conrad's suicide. Michelle is also on psychiatric drugs during this time, specifically those SSRIs we highlighted previously, using specifically Prozac at 14 years old. Prozac itself is proven to increase the risk of suicide in teens. Cut to Conrad admitting to Michelle through text messages that he had been hospitalized by trying to kill himself. 
without any prompt from Michelle previously. He claims that he has voices in his head that tell him to kill himself. Conrad admits to attempting suicide four separate times before ultimately taking his life on the fifth. He tried swallowing over-the-counter pain medication, almost needing a liver transplant after the ordeal. Dr. Bregan explains that all of this could have led to the idea that Conrad had determined he would kill himself long before Michelle's influence, and she just made sure that it was quick and painless. Conrad swears her to secrecy about his own misery and his own suicidal thoughts. Conrad looks up suicide on his computer, claiming his mother saw the fact that he was doing this and did not acknowledge this. Dr. Bregan says both parties involved were the victims to these SSRIs. Impulsivity and impaired judgment are also seen in taking these drugs. Exactly. Michelle is described as involuntarily intoxicated, which, what the hell does that even mean? Am I allowed to use involuntarily intoxicated to fight the charges on my card at the bar? Oh yeah, for sure. July 12th, 2014, Conrad tells Michelle that this is the day he will take his life. And he asks Michelle how he should do it. She tells him to park in a lot and just do it. Go ahead and do it. Do it, babe. Get back in your truck and try again to kill yourself. They exchange texts of their appreciation for each other, telling each other of their love. The texts of that day get more instant from Michelle, where she consistently asks if he will go through with the suicide. It's really important to note that leading up to this day, there were multiple weeks, if not months of texts, that Michelle and Conrad would go back and forth and Conrad would say, okay, this is the night I'm going to commit suicide. He wouldn't text Michelle back that night, and she wouldn't hear back from him until the morning, and he would still be alive. And this would go on for weeks. Phone records show two phone conversations between Michelle and Conrad that evening, totaling more than 45 minutes each. These are Conrad Roy III's last calls. Michelle admits to her peers through texts that she believes she could have prevented his death. Dr. Ann Glowinski, a child and adolescent psychiatrist, explains that ultimately, involuntary intoxication is rarely used in her field among her peers. In some children taking SSRIs, mania is a side effect that may alter behavior. Mania is going through very high highs and very low lows, if you're a Kanye West fan, you understand this very deeply. The prosecution through cross-examination lists all the behaviors that show that Michelle was operating at a normal capacity, attending to all her responsibilities and even attending counseling through this time. The prosecution reads texts to the doctor from Michelle Carter to peers that she's playing ignorant to the knowledge of Conrad Roy III's suicide. Jake, should Michelle Carter testify in this case? In this case, I would say if Michelle had really good reasoning and was like counseled very well by her defense attorneys, and considering the fact that it's a bench trial where there's just a judge, no jury, there is no reason for her to, to testify. The defense takes your side and ultimately decides that Michelle has done enough talking through texts and she does not appear on the stand. The doc 
takes a strange turn, revealing some of the more casual texts between the two when not discussing suicide. Described generously as free association, back and forth. The film explains some of the prevailing elements shown in the text messages come from the television show Glee. Glee was a show about high school that mixed drama with singing. Were you a big Glee fan? Never seen Glee. Come on. Not for a minute. The two main stars of the show, Corey Monteith and Leah Michelle, are dating both on and off screen. It's during this period, though, that Corey is found dead of an overdose during the show's run. Barron showcases examples of how Michelle took word-for-word exchanges using her obsession with the actress and used them in her own text to Conrad. She even uses interviews from the actress herself addressing her own partner's death. And Michelle brings these quotes in text to her friends. The weirdest part is that the Glee actor's overdose happened about a year before Conrad Roy's suicide. So it was, in a weird way, front of mind in Michelle Carter's head. And so you almost think in this case, does that factor into her persuasion and acceptance of Conrad Roy's suicide attempts? Barron now hypothesizes that Michelle may have been playing out a movie in which she is the star. It's at this point we're shown the closing arguments from the case. The prosecution reads texts from Michelle to her friend, who acknowledges that Michelle could have saved Conrad's life. The defense explains that Conrad alone is responsible for his own death by virtue of his own actions. The closing arguments from both sides highlight the core issues in this case, with the dynamics of the relationship that was developed online being put under a legal microscope. Judge Moniz deliberates for only two days and reaches a verdict. Is that a short amount of time? Yeah, that that definitely is a short amount of time. I mean, there's sometimes high-profile cases, more so for jury trials because you have to get 12 people in a room deciding, but those can take weeks, even months. A bench trial, even though it's just a judge deciding himself, deliberating for only two days is a pretty short amount of time, especially... This trial got a lot of media coverage and was a high-profile controversy. News coverage of the trial swirls around the verdict announcement in anticipation of who the judge deems responsible and if Michelle Carter is guilty in the involuntary manslaughter of Conrad Roy III. Judge Moniz begins with explanation for his ruling, stating he broke the evidence into three components. The first is the text messages from the period of time from June 29th, 2014 to July 12th, 2014, the day of Conrad's death. The second is the moment of Conrad's death through July 13th, 2014. The judge uses these two periods to explain the state has proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Michelle, in both periods of time, demonstrated actions that would constitute Wanton and reckless conduct. Real quick, could you explain what wanton and reckless conduct is? That's the standard the judges will sort of use to determine whether involuntary manslaughter was the appropriate charge. So wanton and reckless behavior, 
would just sort of be something that not a reasonable person would do. So beyond the scope of what a reasonable person would do in this sort of relationship. I thought one in reckless behavior is when you meet a really hot girl at a bar, but you're way too drunk to hook up with her. So you're just reckless and, but you want it, but it's reckless. Right. I was thinking more reckless and wanton. So if it's like an Asian. I was thinking wanton and reckless behavior was what you do at a Chinese buffet. (laughs) (laughs) The judge finds that the state did not prove that Michelle was directly responsible for Conrad's death. The judge says that Conrad breaks the chain of self-causation by exiting his truck. In Michelle's instruction to get back into the truck and not seeking to help, the state proves that this action, or rather inaction, caused the death of Conrad Roy. Michelle Carter is found guilty on the involuntary manslaughter charges. Dr. Bregan, star of the case, (laughs) explains that Michelle is a habitual liar who consistently contradicts herself to friends about mundane details. The defense argues that there are no texts or written recordings showing Michelle told Conrad to get back into his truck like the prosecution insists. So Jake, now it's time to play. Did she go to jail or not? Not. So you believe Michelle Carter does not go to jail? Correct. Let's find out. Michelle faces a maximum of 20 years in prison. She ultimately is sentenced to two and a half years in prison. Michelle foregoes appeals and serves the 15 months in prison for Conrad's death. Sorry, Jake. There is no real ending to the documentary. We leave this just as confused as when we first heard the case. It is on the viewer to form their own opinions and what they believe is the true cause of the death of Conrad Roy. I'm not surprised she was convicted. I would say from the defense's perspective, getting 15 months is a major win. She only served 11 months, I believe, plus rehabilitation. That hopefully will set her on a better path in terms of patching up and and allowing the perpetrator to refine themselves and reinvent their own life. It seems like a positive resolution. There is no winner in this case, no matter what. You know, a young man unfortunately took his own life and a young woman was a part of that, sentenced to jail because of that and is dealing with her own mental health issues. So there is no winner of this case. And to really give my final thoughts on documentary, and of course, Jake, I know you haven't watched it, so really appreciate your legal insight and also just hilarious insights. And My pleasure. Michelle Carter is one of the worst human beings out there. You know, but the documentary did a really good job of shifting this perspective in the second part and really highlighting the defense and highlighting a lot of the text conversations that weren't showcased on the Internet or publicly or in press, because these are important. You can't just show 10 or 20 text messages without the thousands before that. Overall, I think the documentary could have done a better job on the mental illness and mental health portion of it. Because they undermine the importance of pharmaceuticals in mental health, especially when it comes to young adults. But I think they definitely could have done a little bit better of a job highlighting on SSRIs, on how that affects our young generation growing up, and how mental illness is such a prevalent thing, unfortunately. 
so overall, I give this documentary, honestly, probably about a 7.5 out of 10. I'm left wondering what Conrad Roy III would think if he knew that this was the outcome. Would he go through with it if Michelle was put on blast, not only to her community, but now the world? Would he want to see her suffer for her feelings? Overall, I give this documentary 8 out of 10 Prozacs. <laughs> now, this documentary received 97% as an audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. But ultimately, I think this delivered well above people's expectations. If you're looking for a similar documentary, I would recommend one titled There's Something Wrong with Aunt Diane that's also found on HBO. All of the Modellos and light IPAs and whiskey shots that we've taken throughout this process have been extremely enjoyable. And I hope you enjoyed not having to watch the documentary. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Sasha, Malia, <laughs> go to bed. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Drunkumentary. Make sure to send any questions or ideas to us at drunkumentarypodcast at gmail.com. Go ahead and do it. Do it, babe. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Drunkumentary Podcast. Why haven't you done it yet? You haven't done it. That's it. Me faso. Brr, brr, brr.